0: Welcome to the Policy Memo, a policy podcast from the perspective of three Black women that have worked at policy at varying levels of government. I'm Shawna, your health policy nerd, and I'll be running down the policy issues and headlines during each episode. I'm Portia, registered nurse turned
1: public health practitioner turned health services research PhD student. And I'm Tamika, passionate about all
2: things equity and policy.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the policy memo where we talk all things policy. This month we are focused on education and as with everything over the past year, one of the major things that COVID has really highlighted are the inequalities and inequities and injustices in our various systems in the United States and the educational system has been no different. We have a special guest with us today. Our guest today has 12 years of experience teaching K through 12 in the southern region of the United States. She is also an instructional coach, and she focuses on supporting teachers and administrators and bringing what is known as culturally responsive teaching into the classroom at both the local and state level. She has also taught in higher education. So our guest today has chosen to remain anonymous due to the school districts that she um, facilitates and participates with. And so we do want to honor that today in this dialogue. So for our listeners who have never heard of culturally responsive teaching, it is a research-based approach to teaching that is focused on helping culturally and linguistically diverse students who have been marginalized in schools, help them to build their skill and capacity to do rigorous work by connecting their cultures, their languages and their life experiences into what they are learning in schools. So we are going to let Portia jump right into this really vitally important discussion. So take it away, Portia, with this
3: discussion. glad to
1: have you with us today. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here and it's always great to reconnect. Yes,
1: yes. So I wanted to have you here today because I know you have extensive experience in education and... I said, whose perspective could I get not only on the state of where we are with, there's been a lot of talk around education and COVID, but also someone who would have the experience to kind of know what has gone on pre-COVID. So if you could just kind of start by telling us just a little bit about what are some of the common challenges or major challenges that you have come across, whether it's with um, instruction and teachers, administration, um, anything related to policy just broadly speaking, as it relates
3: to public education? That was such a great question to ask. And actually before COVID, teachers and students alike have really been struggling, I would say primarily with engagement. So when there's a lack of engagement, students start to do things that can be distracting and disruptive to the overall class. And I think that carried over and actually was um, exacerbated when it came to virtual instruction. Also pre-COVID, some schools, in my district in particular, and I think just nationwide struggle with parent involvement, trying to get support, um, whether it be because parents are just simply working or if there might be a language or cultural barrier that's kind of preventing them from being as active in their students' educational lives as they would like to be. But that's been a struggle when it comes to like getting things um, signed for consent or just supporting students instructionally at home or just getting in contact with them and telling them about their child's day whether it be positive or in an area of growth and then another area is dealing with teacher accountability so administrators following up with teachers about certain things that they are expected to do and not just following up to see if they did it but also in terms of support because sometimes teachers don't always understand how to do some of the things that they're required to do so those are a couple of areas that have been a challenge.
1: Interesting so uh, in your experience um, differences in terms of where those challenges lie so I'm kind of thinking along the lines of just how resources are um, particularly around your comment around teachers and them feeling supported um, in terms of knowing what to do Uh, Does that vary in your experience based on the school? Is it the district? Like, what are some of the factors that might be impacting that?
3: From my experience, I've noticed that it varies within districts, depending on where you are geographically located, you know, in your city or the surrounding areas, because a lot of it has to do with human and physical resources, Mm-hmm. So, though you might be under the same umbrella for your district, sometimes there are schools that have more technology or more human resources, literally in the building, than others because the allocation is inequitable, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes the distribution of literal, you know, funds is is inequitable. In, in so on in my district in particular, you know, on the East end, they have more people. And sometimes it can come by way of just volunteers, people who have the time to come in and support students and teachers. And then also it's very evident in the distribution of technology but one thing I will say is because of the pandemic I know our district and a lot of districts around the nation have become one-to-one meaning each child has their own device because that was the only way they could do school virtually whereas before it was more affluent uh, areas the residential areas in which the school was located they were one-to-one and they've been one-to-one for years but now it's like oh all schools across districts are able to put technological devices in students hands because that's the only way they could meet the expectation.
1: Interesting that you say that that the more affluent areas they were already one-to-one right so that then Makes me think. Okay, you were already, in some sense, in position to be able to rise to the occasion of the challenges that COVID uh, brought with this, particularly around uh, virtual learning. I know that was a challenge for not only K through twelve, even higher education.
3: Absolutely. So you have to consider the fact that not only did the students who were not used to having their own device. Um, you know, have to go through the process of receiving it, but they also have to be oriented on how to use it. Like, what is a Google Meet? How do you get on? How do you, you know, submit work and things of that nature? Whereas other schools already had that experience, so they got to jump right into instruction. I mean, it was a learning curve for everybody, but some some people, you know, the curve took longer to get students acclimated than others. So that's a loss of instructional minutes.
1: So what are some of the most um, frequently reported challenges? Because you mentioned the dynamic between students and parents, right? And the level of engagement and um, that there was this trend that parents were not, and even students were not as engaged um, even prior to COVID, right? In their learning process. What are you hearing from students, parents? Um, We'll start with them first in terms of what are some of the frequently reported challenges prior to COVID and then how did that shift or how did you see that shift? I know we talked about technology, um, but are there any other challenges um, besides uh, access to technology?
3: Absolutely. So there's this whole notion of um, there being a power struggle. So initially pre-COVID, you know, students are in the class, the teacher tells them what to do or puts them out if they're not doing it. You know, certain schools have different systems in place to handle um, students not being compliant or whatever. But now that we're in this virtual space, a student has the power in terms of they can hang up, they can turn their camera off, they can put crazy things in the chat, you know, if that's what they're feeling like. So the teacher doesn't have as much, control so to speak especially if they're used to just having control in one kind of way and that being you know in the physical space of the student depending on you know what their class consequences were so what you see now is a student's not doing their work or being disruptive and the teacher could tell them to stop and the student will just hang up Or the student will just turn their camera off and mute and not say anything. And so then what's the teacher left to do? And you can, so when I do virtual walkthroughs, which is I have a form, there are certain indicators I'm looking for in lessons, and some of those things are not even present because the teacher doesn't even get to that part of the lesson because there's this constant back and forth of the teacher trying to force kids to do um, certain things that they just won't do. And then there might not be a parent at the home at the time to support what the teacher is saying. So something that I do with teachers is try to help them release the need to control every single action on the In the virtual space, at least, so not wasting instructional minutes like turn your camera on, sit up, get out the bed, stop eating breakfast, things like this, like we have to consider the fact that students are at home, <clears throat> and for me and my students, if you are in the bed, that's fine. I don't allow you to be under the covers with your pillow with your head on the pillow. however, if you're in the bed, it's no problem. If you have a background up, that's no problem. If you decide that you want to turn your camera off for a moment, that's no problem. So instead of trying to put out all these meaningless, you know, fires, so to speak, just let kids be present in their space. As long as they are participating and doing what you're asking overall, some of the other things that come along with the virtual context, I feel like don't really matter. Mm-hmm. So this what I've noticed during the walkthroughs is that a lot of instructional minutes are wasted on management. Yeah, And students are like, I don't have to listen to you. <laughs> I'm at home and nobody's going to be here to tell you that I'm going to do anything different. And so that has been a huge challenge. Also, um, just getting students to turn and work. So we have we use the Google suite. We have Google classroom as our platform and teachers are complaining and students are indifferent because they're like, I'm not turning in my work because we have policies in place. That's like, if you show up to class, if you turn in a assignment, you're going to pass. And students know this. So they're like, I'm about to do the bare minimum to get by. Not saying that's the thinking of all of them or, or even most of them, but that is the, the way some of them move. So teachers are frustrated. And for me as a curriculum specialist, what I've noticed is that teachers um, transitioned platforms in terms of being in class to virtual, but they did not transition the way in which they expect students to demonstrate their learning. Mm -hmm. So they're creating interactive worksheets online, like stuff that they can fill in the blank. And kids are like, that's boring. I'm not interested. And so what I try to do um, is encourage problem-based and project-based learning because it's more um, engaging. It allows the students to kind of be the captain of how they want to learn. Mm -hmm. And it's not just rote memorization or something that is really beneath their brilliance so a lot of times work is not turned in because students are not interested in the way that they are being asked to demonstrate their understanding of a particular topic both of them are very collaborative in nature a problem-based learning experience is different in the sense of kids get to kind of look at the world and see like where is there an issue they come up with a the question. They come up with the way in which they want to answer the question. What the teacher does, and this is why students, are, I feel, are more successful, you're a, a facilitator of the learning experience, but you're not the one driving it. But they were responsible for taking in the information, interpreting the information, mm-hmm. asking questions. Like we studied... Um, youth entrepreneurs and how they became millionaires before they were like even teenagers and so their question was how do you become financially successful as a youth entrepreneur something to this nature and they had to find you know all the research all the people and it just you know turned out to be a really great experience and then they have a with problem based on it and project based on it you you have a product or you have some type of advocacy action project that follows um and so for the entrepreneur one they actually developed their own products and it was aromatherapy stress balls they made them out of balloons rice and essential oh, wow. oil and they sold them online and so that was their product so they 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 researched like how people become successful we did, you know, historical people and we were focused on people of color Mm -hmm. historically, you know, presently, and then how they were going to raise money and then they donated their money to a charitable organization that was here local. So it was just, that took over two months. But we hit like 11 standards. So, you know, schools are driven by the common core or whatever standards that they have adopted. And um, we were able to meet that, but also do it in a way that was, relevant for the kids some challenges that have risen as a result of virtual teaching amongst teachers are that some teachers when they were in their classroom they were able you know to hide in their four walls and close the door and some of their teaching practices language um, consequence systems they weren't as visible to administrators and other teachers but now that Principals, assistant principals and other support staff are literally entering these virtual classrooms and seeing teachers in action, it really shed light on the fact that some of the practices are not healthy for students. Some of the trauma that students experience come directly from teachers. And on the contrary, they were able to also see some teachers who are doing great things and highlight them during staff meetings and get them to share resources and certain ways in which they're being successful with their students. So it kind of worked both ways. But administrators were able to have a closer look and a more um, frequent look at what is taking place in the classroom. And also, as we are expecting students to, you know, have their cameras on and be sitting up and paying attention, some teachers were not modeling that. And (laughs) I know we had some teachers who were in bed with the covers on and the lights low and like, well, you know as a professional that that is unacceptable so um it was kind of a recalibration for everybody like okay this is what is okay for virtual learning and this is what is just a Mm non-negotiable so i was really excited that at my school We were able to highlight some really effective culturally responsive strategies that teachers were using that only came by way of um, administrators and support staff regularly visiting these virtual instructional spaces. And so we implemented a new standard that during each staff meeting a teacher we caught doing something excellent would have um 10 to 15 minutes to share their strategy with everybody else who was on the um staff meeting call so that way we were able to get great teaching strategies out to to teachers at a much faster rate because they were able to demonstrate what they were using in their classroom that was Mm -hmm. effective as opposed to working in silos and just having something work for them but never telling anybody else about it so that was something positive that came out of virtual instruction and another shift that has taken place during the pandemic is they have started um, encouraging, not requiring, but highly encouraging teachers to incorporate um, the social justice standards. It was teaching tolerance and now I forgot their new name, but they have free standards, you know, that you can access online and even examples of projects and curricular resources that you can use to help meet the standard. But it gets away from just like, the basic (laughs) task that we want students to be able to do, but gives them a variety of ways to actually demonstrate their learning in a way that speaks to their culture and their current reality.
1: Very interesting. So you mentioned something earlier around some of the policies that um, were in place related to assignments, right? Uh, I think you mentioned that students know as long as they show up, you know, they're going to kind of get a check mark and it's a pass. Can you speak a little bit more about some of the uh, your experience with working with administrators or um, at the local level or even at the state level as it relates to some of these emerging educational policies that we're seeing? Um, so is that something that was in place like prior to COVID or what's been new from an um, administrative lens? So
3: prior to COVID, um, it is just very, 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 very difficult to retain a kid in a particular grade. You have to collect three months of data and you have to have parent consent. You have to show how you have intervened and tried to provide opportunities and experiences for them to be successful. And basically it failed or they failed to meet the expectation. So it's it's very, very, very hard to keep a kid in a grade. And at the end of the day, if the parent is like, no, they can be socially promoted. And so that's even more amplified during COVID because under this umbrella of being equitable and them um, saying that not all students have access to the, um, not only do you have to have a laptop, but you have to have the internet, you know, so access to the internet or parental support or if you're if you're easy if you're in exceptional child education or special education as some people call it um you can't fail anything like they will not let you give them a f or in our district it's a U for unsatisfactory. You cannot give them a U and this is pre-COVID and thereafter, like at all. If they have gotten a zero on everything, you still have to give them at least a D because they're in special education. So there are certain systems in place like that to, um They feel like it's being equitable, but in my personal opinion, I feel like it's detrimental because as they progress, the gap continues to get wider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with a high schooler who can't do basic (laughs) mathematics or read basic sight words or whatever. Um, So during the pandemic, they're like, literally, if your child showed up once to class, if they turned in any kind of assignment, you cannot fail them. Because they're like, you never know what their home you know, situation is in terms of internet, in terms of support, in terms of you know, traumatic things happening. And so a lot of kids have been pushed along, and they are not even academically ready for the grade that they're about to enter in the fall. So that is a policy that's in place. And parents are aware of this policy. Students are aware of this policy. And some individuals use it to their advantage in a negative way. Because they just, you know, do the bare minimum. And some students, you know, have turned in their work appropriately and they have passed legitimately, but that's not mm. the case. Yeah, so
1: I do <laughs> share, I share your sentiment in terms of it really not doing these children any favors long-term. Do you get a sense that at the administrative level, or even at the state level, that there are those that also share um, this sentiment and saying, you know what? we need to try to course correct this? Uh, And if so, are you seeing anything on the ground? Maybe prior to COVID, were you seeing anything to kind of help
3: mitigate any of these potential adverse long-term effects? That's a really great and uh, convoluted question because I have had educators who have served in central office and they have not been... um, they do not agree with a lot of the ways things are handled in terms of passing kids alone or being socially promoted their power is limited and oftentimes when they push back they can be blackballed or demoted you know different things so because of those actions it silences people because they want to keep their jobs Mm -hmm. but there is not a lot being done to course correct, but many, many, many people are very aware of the fact that it is not really helping kids, and we are creating systems of students, you know, who are just not where they need to be academically, and that's what really contributes to a lot of misbehavior, because they don't understand what they're being asked to do because three grades back they you know didn't barely do anything and I think everything is just centered around money and what things look like so Mm -hmm. we have a lot of kids being retained overall in our district that doesn't look good Mm -hmm. and every kid is worth, you know, a certain dollar amount. So they want to keep as many kids as they can. And they want to continue to pass them along until they graduate from their system, because that's what makes them look good.
1: What are your thoughts around um, how this shows up in higher education?
3: So the trend continues, you know, as you're promoted grade to grade K through 12, the gap literally just continues to get wider in terms of, what you are able to what are you what you are expected to be able to do for for that particular level so it's interesting because I actually work with pre-college students over the summer teaching them English and had students where it's like I've worked with fifth graders you know that have more advanced writing skills than these 19 and 20 year olds or 18 19 20 year olds and so you know it's very shocking like wow how, how did you get to this point and you don't have the basic skills of writing as we all know college is largely about producing papers to demonstrate your learning mm-hmm. and so they always say like my teacher didn't I was doing this, and they said it was fine. And, and then they, you know, wind up at that point. And there are also systems in college that promote students. I've been in a situation where um, my class was the last class that they needed in order to be able to student teach. And some of my students did not pass. And I was asked to pass them. I was asked to give them alternative assignments and go back in and change their grade because if not they were going to have to wait a whole nother year in order to student teach and you know college is expensive and they didn't want them to have to to do that but their writing was terrible and their um, assignment completion was not you know where it was supposed to be so I I literally was forced to give them alternative assignments, to regrade, go back in the system, and change their grade just enough so that they could pass.
1: And back in the day, that would have just been like, oh, you got to wait a year? Oh, well. Yep. So I know we've talked a lot about some of the challenges, but now I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. there been a lot of conversation in the news as of late around COVID vaccines since they've opened it up for 12-year-olds 12, 12 and, and up to be vaccinated. Have you heard anything at the administrative level, at the state level, in terms of potentially requiring students to be vaccinated before they go back? Anything that you're seeing, whether it's from the admin level, or even students and parents asking the school or or engaging with the school around what the expectations should be in in the fall?
3: The expectation is still that you have your own choice. Like if you want to get vaccinated, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. However, I know um, it is proposed that when we go back in the fall, we're going to be maskless or you can choose if you want to wear your mask or not. In addition to that, there's a lot of, like, vaccine shaming going on, like, if you don't have, like, a lot of parents will just straight up be like, oh, are you vaccinated? Or how many kids in your class are vaccinated? And that's nobody's business. And so they, um, you know, don't feel as comfortable when their teacher and the students in their class, you know, don't have plans to get vaccinated. I know they just kind of opened it up not quite for elementary age students, but, you know, middle high school age students to get the vaccine. So I know it's just going to trickle down and eventually they're going to allow everybody to be able to get it. So I know personally, I um, recently decided to get the vaccine. I was one of the last people at my school because I was just, you know, still doing my research and making my decision and not just trying to drink the Kool-Aid. And so um, there was a function that a teacher put on and she was like, well, are you vaccinated? As if like, well, I really don't want you to come if you're not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Um, And people have this. The vaccine is definitely helpful, but you know, have this misconception like anybody can still get COVID.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned trauma and I kind of want to go back to something because we talked earlier about you know, students kind of being pushed along. So there was an NPR story that I listened to a while back, maybe a few weeks ago, that was uh, discussing, you know, for the fall schools, some schools are given the option for students to come back in person or remain virtual. And there was a, a black woman who was talking about the experience of her son and how he would be so anxious. I think it was about elementary school age, so anxious in the classroom when they were in person and that he did much better in the virtual space because he was at home, he could be more relaxed, he could engage more. And um, kind of reminds me of the issues around culturally responsive teaching in the classroom right? and just teachers creating a environment that produces anxiety, particularly for students of color, right? And so what are your thoughts on... Any potential policies that might emerge now that you see, you know, the admins have been able to get a chance to see what has been going on and the ramifications of those behaviors. Um, Are you seeing that schools are giving or open to giving parents the option to remain virtual or, or are they all going back in person where you are?
3: I feel a lot of school districts are still pending on that decision. A lot of them, to my knowledge, are going to continue the trend of choice. So, you know, say about February, March, some districts said, all right, you can come back or you could stay at home. And so for us, it was about 50-50, it was 55-45. And the 55 being the ones who stayed at home, 45% came back to school. I think that should continue because there are some students who have experienced a lot of trauma in these school buildings, particularly students of color, because there is a cultural incongruence between the teacher and the students. And they are oftentimes being um, policed Within the classroom, for the way that they naturally show up in their bodies. Yep. And so it's causing them to have anxiety, like the young man you mentioned, or to just check out or to be defiant because they feel this oppositional culture in the spaces that they're supposed to feel safe and supported. So I do feel, in my personal opinion, that they should give families choice because what works for one might not work for others. It does require a lot of logistical um, preparation in order to be able to do that successfully. And just like some students felt more comfortable learning at home and they thrived. The same goes for teachers, some teachers just feel more comfortable working in their homes, and maybe there can be a pairing with the students who have that preference and the teachers who have that preference and it could um you know just work out better for everybody who is involved.
1: yeah, you make a really good point, and it kind of
3: makes me think of um different
1: subjects right that might that might show up in, so particularly the sciences, the maths where Oftentimes, you know, when you're really young, it's like, oh, I really love math and science. And you just have that one teacher. Right. As you're matriculating, that kind of like turns you off to it. Um, And oftentimes that's because of biases that they have. So have you all noticed that um, from an admin perspective or teacher's perspective that there were differences based on the
3: subject matter that was taught or was it kind of across the board? It was across the board and it happens uh, far too often. So one thing that has been birthed out of this pandemic is that now in our district, teachers are required to take an implicit bias training. At the beginning of the school year, um, to kind of raise their awareness and start to have these vulnerable conversations about things that are done knowingly or unknowingly that really make students feel invisible or feel disrespected and how the way we were raised and our cultural understanding and acceptance and different things impacts the way that we interact with those who we lead. And that can be from administrator to teacher, teacher to student, teacher to parent, vice versa. And so um, that's been great. Also we have in our equity department, they've developed lesson plan indicators interview questions and a walkthrough observation tool that's all centered around this notion of um, things being equitable, culturally responsive, you know, free of bias when we're working with students, families, and teachers. So they have these tools now that we use when we're engaging in that type of work to try to eliminate some of the systems and practices that have been perpetuated, you know, throughout the year.
1: Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about some of the long-term effects of COVID um, on K-12 through education, particularly around just students being behind, right? And the, and, and the educational gap being widened. Any other long-term effects that you have observed, whether it's from an admin perspective, state perspective, teacher perspective, student or parent, that you feel may come with COVID, I mean, you know, a year, three years, five years from now?
3: Yes, there are things that are brewing now and will continue to feel the effects of them for years to come, largely, well, first of all, let's start and just say, like, there's always the summer slide, like, over the summer, there's not a lot of instruction that's typically taking place, and some of the things that students have been taught once they return in the fall, you know, they've lost some of them. Yeah. On top of the summer slide, we now have the COVID slide. So for the students who took a while to get on um, to the computers or perhaps didn't get on at all or were on but barely did anything, now we have that potential gap. And then we have this racial trauma-like issue. So students have – and teachers – Everyone has been impacted by what has happened in our country and what's just happening around the world in general. And that has contributed to some of the educational gaps. And within that, there is some racial tension present in buildings. There's also more vulnerable conversations that are happening mm-hmm. around race and things that have taken place historically and what's going on currently in our country. So it's kind of opened people up to at least begin the conversation. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're in a very special and unique time because we can take that vulnerability and that awareness and actually make shifts and practices, policies, and mindsets mm-hmm. if we are, you know, willing to do so instead of just closing that and acting like it didn't happen and continuing school as normal, which there is, you know, no normal now, really, I think we should capitalize on this time in our history to really push the work forward. But I have seen students become a lot more emboldened and um, have a lot more advocacy for themselves in terms of what they're learning, how they're learning it, how they're demonstrating what they have learned. Like they're telling teachers like, no, I don't feel like this is appropriate from our culture or I would rather learn like this X, Y, Z. Mm-hmm. So teachers have to be um, in a space where they're comfortable, but also vulnerable and flexible enough to listen to students and kind of shift maybe some ways that they were going to teach something or assess something and give students the opportunity to Um, showcase their brilliance and share their opinion on how they would want to learn because that gives you more buy-in and ultimately it promotes more academic achievement but there is another side to that where some students have taken the race wars and different things that are going on in our country and they are now like condemning people like oh just because you're not black or not melanated you're racist Mm -hmm. so we have to teach you know the balance between the two of like advocacy but not automatically assuming things about people who might not be of the same race as as them Uh, another positive thing that has come out of this whole situation is that people in districts are desperately looking for um, individuals who can come in and coach their teachers and administrators and adopt new programs that are free of bias and put more culturally relevant books into classroom libraries, things of that nature, and so that has benefited me personally because mm-hmm. I had more virtual training experiences that I've ever had in my consulting career during the pandemic, and I was you know doing everything right from my from my office as opposed to before I had some, but the need was not as grand. So now people are literally just like looking, please come and, you know, work with my my staff. So that's been a beautiful thing. And um, I think everything is still at the like, oh, I've raised your awareness, but now what are we going to do? So yeah. we have to put some action behind the things that we have realized in order to have sustainable um, achievement and, you know, just overall good educational experiences.
1: Yeah, so- I have to ask you this question because uh, um, there's been a lot of talk lately in the news around critical race theory being taught in K-12 through 12 schools, which for the record, it's not. Um, but I'm curious about um, any teachers or admins in terms of, and parents also, right? Like what has been, or has there been any um, response at either the local or state level to this new fake news that we have in the ether (laughs) around um, what curriculum is actually being taught in K through 12 public schools. I've
3: not had any personal experiences with pushback or even like a lot of curiosity about it. Um, But I know some states are uh, strongly opposed to it. I think that critical race theory has not been taught like nationwide at all and it's not been expected to be taught, and people, like, try to sweep that under the carpet, but I do feel like some aspects of culturally responsive teaching just automatically support critical race theory, and have been, and are starting Mm -hmm. to be um, shared, and practiced. Um, I think there's, like, you know, people have different names for it, but at the end of the day, like it it has been happening and it is happening in very small, small, small pockets. Mm-hmm. And so now that it's becoming, you know, very jargony and um, a lot of light has been shed on it at this point. Some people are like, hold on, no, I don't want my student, you know, learning about that. And they are uh, directly opposed. Just like some people are directly opposed to standardized testing. Like, it's just one of those things. I don't really, I can't really anticipate like what the outcome is going to be in terms of like the, the, policy decisions that are going to be made in terms of if it is going to be mandated or not but I'm all for it definitely I think it should have been taught decades ago and so I'm glad that we're having these you know controversial conversations per state because it should have been happening and I think ultimately um, some good is going to come out of it and Mm -hmm. I hope that Uh, teachers are trained enough regardless of your cultural ethnic racial background whatever i hope they're um you know trained coached, supported provided with resources enough to be able to teach this because it's not easy and it's gonna cause very tough conversations to arise within classrooms with families whatever and they have to be prepared because the one thing i've noticed is that teachers uh, white female teachers in particular are literally terrified to have conversations around race and they automatically just feel that they are going to be the enemy, and you know some of that is just white fragility, and you have to kind of you know coach them around it so that they can feel empowered to help disrupt some of these systems that are not serving our babies. And I'm sure a lot of
1: that also is you—they're not having those kind of conversations in their personal lives, right? So if you yes, don't
3: and that's where it begins
1: in your personal lives. How can you really incorporate that in the classroom? Because you do exactly, to your teacher bring part of yourself to the classroom. And you touched on a few moments ago that, you know, we're at a stage of awareness, particularly around districts and schools and now embracing culturally responsive teaching. I wouldn't say embracing. (laughs) Embracing. Well, open to, I'll say. More are open to more are like, oh, what's that thing over there? I think maybe we need to like figure out how those people can help us with classroom dynamics, right? Um... So we're still, things move slowly, so we're, we might be in this awareness or embracement stage of at least wanting to know what, what, what culturally responsive teaching is. From your lens, from a policy perspective, what do you think are, you know, maybe one or two policies that either a school or a district could or should be implementing to really support culturally responsive teaching in general?
3: I think, kind of like what my district did last academic year at the beginning, there should be mandatory non negotiable training experiences, and it should be done in such a way where um you you know you get information, but you're also able to process that information out loud, share your experiences, your thoughts, maybe some bias stereotypes, prejudice that you might have had that you don't want to have anymore mm-hmm. or just you know being able to dialogue and interact with people who are, you know, not as similar to you so that you can have like a contrasting perspective and then grow from that. I think that should be something that is a, a policy mandated within school districts. Mm-hmm. I also feel like in order to teach in a different way, there have to be resources and ongoing support in place for teachers to be able to successfully do that. Like you can't make a big fuss about it, but then just leave it there. There need to be human resources and physical resources to carry out that um, new way of doing things what do you, what is your response to those who
1: say, okay, well, you can have as many, as much bias training, culturally responsive training as you want to, but you know, when those teachers show up in the classroom, it could be a totally different story. Right. And I know there has been, um, you know, in the past, lots of talks around the stronghold of teachers unions, you know, being really difficult to fire teachers Mm
2: -hmm.
1: with that at play. How how difficult do you think the the challenge will be to really, you know, kind of weave culturally responsive teaching into the fabric of K
3: through twelve public education? <laughs> I think it's going to be very difficult. Like if you think, you know, when you put on your clothes, you put your left foot in first and then your right foot. And now all of a sudden somebody's telling you to put your right foot in and then your left. Like it takes a while because it starts in the mind, like you have to shift perspectives. And the only way I think that will be achieved over time is if teachers are provided um, resources in order to teach in that particular way and accountability measures. Like you can't just say do this and then never monitor it. Like Mm -hmm. documentation. Is key because what doesn't get monitored doesn't get achieved. So I think that's where administrators and support staff and whatnot come into place and they're coming in and they are not doing so from such an evaluative perspective because that can make people feel uncomfortable and like they don't want to participate, but more so like I'm your colleague, I'm here to support you. So this is what I noticed that you did great. And these are some areas that I feel you could grow. Also incorporating student voice, like what are your students saying about you? I highly encourage like these quarterly um, check-ins with students. Like, how am I showing up? How do you, you know, enjoy teaching? I mean, learning in my class, are there things that I should do differently? Are there things that I do that you just love? Like, see what they think. It's not just admin to teacher and teacher to student, but it's also student to teacher, like Mm -hmm. get their opinion and make some changes. So it's going to require us to be very like flexible. Otherwise, I don't think it will be sustainable or um, effective across all, you know, platforms, grade levels, districts. Yeah. So yeah. it's like a all hands on deck type of situation. Mm-hmm. Because and it, are you finding you know,
1: that students are responding to the the shift? Have you noticed that? Even in just some of your work um as a consultant?
3: Yes, for the teachers who are implementing these, you know, quote unquote new practices with fidelity, yeah. students like how their instructional space feels more like a community things are happening a lot more conversationally and not like you do this, you do that and being reprimanded for not doing it the exact way that they tell you, but having space to like, just show up in your um, innate way, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever that might be and showcasing your brilliance and not, you know, being policed all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that has fared well for both the teachers because management wise, you know, they have less, negative things happening and also for the students because they feel like they're more a part of the educational community within their room or school or district. And they're given, you know, more opportunities to have their voice heard and to do leadership things.
1: Okay. So we're going to we're coming to a close and I just Mm -hmm. want to get your thoughts on um, for the fall, for this next upcoming academic year, What would you say in your point of view would be some things that based on what we've learned with having a shift with COVID and technology, we talked about administration being able to monitor a little bit better Uh uh, what's going on in the classroom. What are some things that you think we should uh, stop (laughs) in the fall and what are some things
3: that we should adopt Mm -hmm. i think we should just stop doing education as normal like we have been in a pandemic for over a year we cannot return to the physical space the way we left it so i think we have to enter with a a new mindset take the things that we've you know seen and learned and reflect and make action plans to do things differently or else things will continue as normal and probably worse so that's a step one and then um like you mentioned, just, you know, more accountability and more support, like human resources and physical resources, you know, dollars. And then um, I think we really should adjust our benchmarks, like on a curricular level, there are certain things in language and language in these standards that teachers are like, just, you know, pressured to make students Learn, But they're doing so in ways that are not really supportive of the way they prefer to learn. And it's like, some teachers feel like, by a certain date, I have to have taught this many standards for this subject area, etc, where we should kind of like open our minds up to Like I was saying, social justice standards, project and problem based learning, incorporating different ways to use technology, like instead of having students do a worksheet and tell the main idea, allow them to create an infographic on their computer. Yeah, like simple shifts like this, Mm -hmm. that will help them to be more um, engaged and buy in to what they're learning. Yeah, I love
1: it. Like you have to be innovative. There is no mm-hmm. going back to normal. There is no such thing as normal anymore. The world mm-hmm. it and we have to, you know, shift with it. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for taking the time. This has been a great discussion. I've learned a lot. Um, just in terms of what was going on before and kind of, you know, some spots to kind of look out for um moving forward. So mm-hmm. thanks again. Thanks for joining us.
3: You're welcome.
0: much for that really insightful conversation, Portia, with our guest today. Some of the themes that I got from the conversation revolved around technology as a basic need, the fact that our overall education system needs reinvestment and restructuring, and then the whole notion or concept of culturally responsive teaching. So that's what I got from it. Let me hear you all's thoughts, you know, Portia, I know you were in it, right? But um, after maybe deciphering it a bit more, was there any specific thing that you got from it, Portia? And then Tamika, what did you think about um, some of what came up in that conversation as well?
1: Sure, so I'll just say quickly, In addition to some of those themes, I thought it was really interesting hearing the conversation back and hearing her talk about this idea of teaching mode choice, right? So uh, the fact that, you know, her being an advocate for parents and students being able to decide whether or not they send their children to school in person or they remain at home in the virtual space based on what they're comfortable with. There was a theme around um, trauma for children in the classroom. Uh, And it kind of made me actually think about some of the conversations that have been happening as of late, as um, employees are going back to work, right, or making the decision about whether or not particularly Black and Brown employees and microaggressions and whether or not they feel like they want to return to work in person.
0: Tamika, what about you?
2: Sure. And so, you know, I'm a big on health equity, well, overall equity, and some of the issues or things that highlighted or came about when I listened to that great interview was one, I mean, social promoting. So I don't have any education friends. I don't really know anyone in education. I do know, watch several documentaries about Common Core and No Child Left Behind. Uh, but I really wasn't understanding how that trickled down to like everyday teaching and how it's affecting kids and we know that when it comes to kids having challenges on reading and writing black and brown kids they often fare worse and have worse outcomes when it comes to this so when she was discussing um, the idea of social promoting and they did that before and how it's really hard to fail a child or to have them repeat a year grade, I should say. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And then to know that instead of, I guess, offering extra help for those kids that are struggling or was struggling through the pandemic, their solution to this problem would be just to pass them on. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I don't yeah. know. That makes me feel uncomfortable because on one hand, I get it, right? There are children that had a really hard time and she kind of highlighted some of those challenges they Um, they had with like maybe they had technology but no access to internet. Maybe they had a single mom who suffered from COVID. Maybe their family members died during COVID and they had to be uprooted from their current situation to go live with extended family or even foster care. Like we we don't know the impact yet on children but another thing I just feel really uncomfortable about the idea of just passing them on because at the end of the day it's not going to help them in the long term even when she was discussing like she is doing tutoring i think for pre-college kids and she's and some of them are not even um writing on a fifth grade level and so Mm -hmm. when we're talking about health equity is it that we know you had challenges in life so we're just going to pass you on or is it we're going to put in systems and policies to help you with those challenges, you know, so you could be successful later on. And that's not right. what I was hearing. And I was really concerned about that. Um, you know, there was some discussion of having like a summer, I think early on before the summer came, right, because we're in July, um, having a something around teachers or college students that just graduated so they can do the summer program and really offer it to those students that were struggling. But other than that, I haven't really heard of anything going on um, with really supporting the kids who had challenges. So they're not getting to this next grade um, with, because we don't know how the fall is going to happen, right? Some people are doing it in person now, COVID rates might go up and experience these same things over and over and over again, so that is really concerning for me. So let's unpack that action. really quickly, yeah. Tamika
0: uh, because sure. I really like that you brought that up as as one of the the points. And I, look, sometimes you and I are like, eh, but this one I really agree with you here, <laughs> right? Um, but I I guess before we jump into my question, just to explain social promotion again for our listeners, so social promotion is that practice of promoting a student to the next grade, regardless of if they learned the necessary material or if they were often absent. So I would say, you know, that is, it's interesting that I'm hearing that because, you know, I have a a student in high school and not that I found social promotion happening a lot or experienced it a lot, I actually found it very difficult Um, when my child was struggling with certain things to get, you know, Tamika, you mentioned resources or systems to get those resources that we needed to maybe make sure that he didn't get that D or he didn't get that C. It was like, they were just okay with letting the chips fall where they may. And for me, as like someone who was actively involved in not only just local education where I live, but like the education of my child, it was a little disheartening to think that I wonder how many people are struggling and how many people are asking for help and asking for resources. And they're just like, it is what it is.
2: Right. And I agree with that a hundred percent, but to another point of we know that this is happening now on a much larger scale like we know we had a whole year to prepare for if things go the right way what are we going to do with these children that really struggled throughout last year because we know data told us we we saw the reports coming out teachers spoke about their concern of kids not actively being um engaged in the classes or even logging in we knew you know that these were going to be challenges and so it's just disappointing to hear that even though we had some time prepare to put in those policies and programs um maybe use some covid federal funding to do that it's just like we're just going to pass them <laughs> i don't know it's i guess a great letdown for me because i just saw in terms of equity i mean I know a lot of conversations in the news about equity even in teaching um, critical race theory and all this other stuff, but it's like, we're not even putting in basic policies to ensure that our children are passing, you know, first, we, we knew the challenge was coming. This wasn't a surprise.
0: So as you're um, talking about that, I just decided to do a bit of research and I'm looking at so some school districts and you know I know we have we want to uphold the anonymity of our guests um, but I'm looking at a particular school district where they came out with a policy around decisions regarding promotion and retention um, and you know they cite the legal basis um, you know the statutes around um, administrative regulation and things like that and I'm wondering if they, actually went through and utilized this policy or if the policy even trickled down to the school level right because we know these policies are being made at the district level at the state level excuse me not the district level the state level and how much of this is being trickled down to the local school-based level
2: right and that again highlights equity and resources and money and funding because um even i know of some school districts or on the local level they decided to mandate summer school Um, so they are paying teachers or teachers get paid I'm not surely how that works but they get paid year round but they're offering summer school to help some children who may have been struggling during the school year and they're doing it for free I do know there are some school systems that decided to do that but for the school systems that have not again that's where that equity Portion comes in. And I think it should have been made. I mean, I know federal policy, they could just set the tone, and the states are going to implement it the way they want to implement it. But I just felt like a larger discussion or concern should have been shown for those kids that were struggling and being left behind. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just truly disappointed on that. I mean, I know the Biden campaign, they were in discussions before. like summer school again came in and they were offering different solutions and what they think might work. And that really the having the summer core, um, that was a great idea why it wasn't kind of put into action or really supported on a federal level, or I haven't heard of anything lately in the news about it. Um, It's kind of disappointing because that would have helped those students that are having the challenges, but also be recent college grads that could not find a job Um, that would have offered funding for them to do some of that supportive work and teaching for those students that are challenging too. So would have offered more jobs. Um, But yeah, it just kind of stagnated a little bit like student loan forgiveness. I just had to add in there and we haven't heard anything about that. So that was was truly, I guess, eye-opening for me and um, concerning, concerning. Because again, it's Black and Brown children that are going to be suffering the most.
1: Yeah, I would agree Tamika. I think also um, one thing that she did highlight is that I think because of that gap there is perhaps a need to kind of uh, reimagine the the approach to teaching so I think even the concept of um, culturally responsive teaching and how that could be of value right to ensure that even at the basic level you know yeah a child can fall behind but they may not even be able to keep up because of the way that they're being taught a particular subject right. Um, So in terms of using those tools to ensure that students are able to remain engaged in the classroom and also um, be also advocates for their own learning experience as well.
2: Right. So even talking about the way students learned, um, (laughs) I was a little bit surprised to hear that some of the teachers, uh, they were caught in in bed, not (laughs) teaching in bed, she said, I think describes lights off or lights low, basically half awake, um, teaching their students. And when we're talking about engagement, why would I, first of all, what student really wants to sit in front of a computer all day, when we're talking about like middle school? Um, Second, why am I going to log on and pay attention to a teacher who's in bed and is like barely teaching a class or doing, or offering any type of engagement. So that was, again, I don't have any friends that are teaching. I'm sure that's not the majority of teachers, but you know, we do have those teachers out there that do do the bare minimum. And so that was a little bit um, surprising to hear as well. But I do like how she said during their teacher call um, for those teachers that were doing um, excellent and innovative things that they were allowed to share their teaching techniques to other teachers that maybe, I mean, honestly, were not um, the way she was describing it. So um, I do kind of like that, at least give them the option to learn from each other. Because um, again, we don't know what the teachers are going through. Um, you know, we, we talk about the children and how COVID has negatively impacted their psyche. I can only imagine, you know, for the teachers as well, who are dealing with personal and other issues and their children and then having to show up and perform. Um, so that was, that was also right. interesting.
0: Yeah. So I know that, you know, Tameka, um, you know, there's been a lot of research out there during COVID, you know, about student engagement, right, and the lack of engagement. There really hasn't right. been much um, about teacher engagement, but I, right. I will say, you know, having, a lot of friends um, that are teachers, you know, I don't know anybody that that was laying in the bed and, and you know, whatever <laughs> these people were going through during that time, I feel for them and having to, to show up and perform, right. have their cameras on all day for eight to nine hours is probably exhausting. But I, right. I guess I, what I will say to support those teachers that gave all of the, the effort and showed up, you know, to classrooms, mm-hmm with 10 students and then having to have 20 students on zoom um Mm -hmm. you know kudos to you and thank you for what you did um being able to i know when i teach um on the university level and in the fall when i had to go in on campus and then also do zoom at the same time i did it one time and i was like yeah y'all just need to be all on Zoom because I'm not going to be doing this (laughs) this back and forth, looking at the person in the classroom and looking at the people on Zoom. So to our teachers that did that for 10 months straight, thank you so much for all of your efforts, the impact that you have. Um, Those of you who were able to motivate students and get them to continue to love learning despite their challenges, you know, we do thank you for that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I say it all the time, teachers are underappreciated and underpaid. Um, so I can't even imagine working with both of both of those already, working, you know, trying to do your best. They often have to reach into their pockets to make class engagement, right? They don't get paid a stipend to um, provide books and, and other materials to the students so they can work on different projects. So I know some teachers, there were stories in um, newspapers of, that came out in newspapers, excuse me, uh, articles that came out about teachers really going above and beyond to make the virtual setting engaging. I mean, I think there was a story about one teacher in Brooklyn, that they weren't even having children participate in, in the zoom and so what he decided to do was to go door to door with mm-hmm. um, you know, his, his class was and see what was going on, why the t- the children not participating, why they're not signing on in his class. Mm-hmm. And so we often hear stories like that, again, about teachers going above and beyond. And so definitely want to highlight that. And like you said, Shauna, say kudos to the teachers that continue to perform at a high level um, during the stressing time. So definitely, um, again, I, I agree on that. So I just have one last point. Um, I thought it was really interesting, right? Because we see on different types of levels, whether it's the university level or K 12 um, level, I really appreciate that you asked her this question, Portia, regarding requiring the vaccinations and the different options that she had in her system. So it was interesting to hear that although uh, they're not requiring vaccinations, they will be masked. So that was interesting um yes, was. discussed <laughs> vaccine shaming and I yeah, thought Shauna's this is where I felt again
0: shaming. oh go ahead Portia I'm sorry what did oh, you say, was say me out. yes
2: that, that,
0: that me was a out that my, sensitivity, had, <laughs> my sensitivity my <laughs> sensitivity to vaccine shaming out there but I thought it that it was in this interview vaccine shaming I was I was yes. not either
1: yes, yes. And so go ahead to me
2: well I was going to say I I might be the villain when it comes to this though because um she kind of discussed how people want to know their vaccination status and that it's it's no one's business which I agree you know um you shouldn't have to necessarily share that information but if I had a student I think I would want to know if it's his teacher especially if we're going to okay back we to the cut this out <laughs> I, are we are we gonna get that I can stop I'm joking I'm joking <laughs> I would just want to know their vaccination status because it is uh, most K through um, 12, I think, what age group is that? Like top, uh, maybe, well, not K through 12, sorry, middle school. Are, they're not approved for the vaccinations yet. So we're going back full-time, maskless, not requiring vaccines. Um, I don't know. I feel a little uncomfortable about not knowing whether or not the doctor or you know, other students are vaccinated. Mm-mm. at least a percentage
1: I, yeah I, ahead, I think that's, I said I think that's a slippery slope if it's your child and you're the parent and you're choosing to send your child to school and even though the the institution might say oh we're maskless that doesn't mean I can't send my child to school with a mask on
0: Exactly. Like, you know and that like, doesn't mean that you're true. entitled to know my child's vaccine status either exactly or my family's I mean, vaccine status I agree,
2: like, it's not it's more of the child, more, um, the, I just more I just feel like they're rolling back all these policies kind of fast. Like you're not requiring this, 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 and this. And then if you show concern about one thing, um, your shame too for showing concern about it. And, I, and I, that's all I was about to say. Um, my point was. There's a was, difference
0: between showing concern be though and then like violating my privacy. You know what the deal is. You know what the school district has or has not said regarding masks or whatever. They haven't said anything about us needing to know our vaccine status. So therefore, if you choose to be in the classroom then you know what the potential risks are and you don't need to know my vaccine status. So what, if you didn't know, right. this, that I mean, what you're, you're not going to talk to me up close because I'm not vaccinated? That's crazy. Like what, What? how does that benefit you in any way? I, I mean, I don't know.
2: I just feel like there are people that have immune compromised systems, but maybe their option is not bringing their children back to school. So like, you, like you, there are options out there and like you and Portia said, it is a slippery scope, but I think, well, excuse me it's on both sides it's just I don't know I, I feel like we're going to one extreme on one side and one extreme to the other side and no one is trying to meet anyone in the middle as well so that's great I point. about that yeah, yeah like no, I no I, match I, I nothing agree. is required nothing and then it's you know everyone's vaccinated nothing <laughs> when no one is like really trying to work out a middle ground solution to where everyone can kind of feel comfortable about you know, getting, going back to regular life. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. That's, it's a challenge. It is a slippery slope, um, but uh, there's just like no middle ground is trying to be heard. One is on one side, the other one's on the other side, but that's politics today anyway. Um, so that was interesting to hear as well, that how many people, even other teachers are like, uh, you're not vaccinated. We really don't want you to participate. I just thought that was interesting as well.
0: So I know that, you know, that was a mouthful, as always, we always come with, you know, all of the different perspectives that you all should consider. Portia, did you have any final thoughts, um, being that you were in the interview? And, um, you know, any other questions that maybe you would have asked um, our guests that you don't think that you got a chance to hear about?
1: Um, I think I got a chance to ask pretty much everything that know i had intended to get to i was i'll say this i think it was um it'll be nice for our listeners to kind of um kind of get a peek into the value of culturally responsive teachings because that did come up a lot in terms of Mm -hmm. particularly because of the climate of covid and the need to be innovative just because of the way you know the mode of teaching changed um, overall I thought it was a great interview. Um, I learned a lot especially around the dynamics of just working in silos and the value of mm-hmm. having a virtual platform right as an option to kind of see what my colleague is doing to kind of learn from from one another. I guess we don't I think sometimes we don't realize how much teachers are actually siloed even though they're all in the same building but they're not like going around each other's class because they're working right to be able to see what their colleagues, um, are doing and kind of learn those tips and pick up those tips in real time to use them. So overall, lots of challenges ahead it looks like, but it also looks like there also is some room to move the needle forward a bit.
0: All right, well, I think that is all that we have for today. Um, Just a plug for what Portia mentioned. If you want to learn more about culturally responsive teaching, be sure to visit edutopia.org, E-D-U-T-O-P-I-A.org. And there is a great article about culturally responsive teaching and how to get started with that process. We look forward to checking in with y'all again on our next episode of The Policy Memo.
1: Thanks for listening to The Policy Memo Podcast. To keep up with us, follow us on Instagram at thepolicymemo_podcast underscore podcast and on Twitter at Policy Memo Pod. For questions and suggestions, email us at policymemo at
3: gmail.com.